Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com earnings right now. netsuite.com earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. Talk about some of the more interesting aspects of business of sports. There's all kinds of cool questions, so this is a fun topic for me. The country is finally getting the memo about how amazing this sport is. I think the sky's the limit for MLS. We're spending more and more of our time in a digital world, and it's also becoming a really powerful place for commerce. It is so nice to be back and to be able to have fans back in the building. So despite the chaotic schedule, this is why we do what we do. When you get into the playoffs, there's nothing better as a player and excitement and it's also for the organization and sponsors involved bloomberg business of sports from bloomberg radio this is the bloomberg business of sports show where we explore the big old money issues in world sports i'm michael Barr. i'm scarlett foo and i'm mike lynch coming up on the show the mlb lockout continues we get the latest on cba negotiations with mlb networks john morosi plus catch up with no lamantane former offensive lineman for the Cleveland Browns and director of the pro team at Verdens Capital Advisors. We get his take on a big story at the intersection of professional sports and wealth management. That's straight ahead on the Bloomberg Business of Sports show. But first, let's look at some of the other topics of the week. And there's a lot to talk about involving Russia, involving coming into Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And it obviously, the, the human aspect of that, we cannot even compare that with sports. But we are the business of sports. And there are a lot of things, a lot of sports issues that came out of that. One involved a very rich man. Yeah, you're talking about Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich, who is selling the Chelsea Football Club. Um, It's interesting because he was previously looking to transfer the stewardship and care of the club to members of his charitable foundation. And it's not clear how that was going to happen. Um, He had not mentioned anything about giving up ownership, but now that's changed. And of course, the backdrop to all this is the UK has proposed these new laws that would target wealthy Russians, uh, which would include Abramovich. uh, And some of these laws might, might include freezing their assets. So now he's announced that he's going to sell the club outright and saying it's a painful and personal sacrifice. He's specifically saying he's not asking Asking for any loans to be repaid. We know he's invested about $2 billion of his personal fortune in the club over 20 years. And he's doing it with a very 
urgent timeline. Lynchy, it feels like he needed to get this done yesterday. Well, of course, because I thought that they, as we mentioned earlier, that they may freeze the assets, especially in the United Kingdom. Um, the good news out of this is that the proceeds from the sale of the Chelsea Football Club are going to be used to uh, help and aid the victims of Ukraine, those who uh, are injured, those who are ill, and those who are just scrambling out of the country, finding a place to live. Now, with the soccer story, the Paralympics, they have said that Russia and Belarus, you cannot play in the games It's a reversal from what they said earlier, but then so many other athletes said, you know what, if they're in, I'm out. I'm sure nobody's happy that these athletes now, you know, it's not the greatest decision in the world, but for what the games are saying, this is best for the Paralympic Games. I think you nailed it. Nobody's happy with any of this. Ordinary Russians, uh, Russian athletes are, are being punished, and they're not the ones who are directing what's happening uh, when it comes to Ukraine. So it's unfortunate for everyone involved. But there's this sense in the US and Europe that we have to use soft power to get Putin to understand what's happening here. This all was precipitated by the curlers from Latvia who refused to compete against Russia. Mm -hmm. And the people who run the Paralympics were really surprised about this. So they're expelling the athletes. There are 71 of them from Russia and a dozen of them from Belarus who have been expelled from the games. Otherwise, there'd be no games at all. Nobody would want to compete. And uh, again, athletes that are trained for years and years and years to get over to Beijing, they're going now through March 13th. But they're going to proceed from this point forward without Russian and Belarus para-athletes. I also want to mention other sports that are cutting ties or suspending their relationships with Russian business partners. And I bring up hockey because obviously I'm a hockey fan, but 5% of the NHL's players are Russian. So this is kind of a big deal for the NHL to suspend its relationships there, pausing Russian language social and digital media sites, really putting aside any consideration of Russia as a location for any future NHL competition. You wonder what kind of pressure this puts on the players. And I'm thinking of Alex Ovechkin of the Washington Capitals, for instance, who has posted with Putin on his Instagram account, or uh, Artemi Panarin, who had to take a leave of absence from the Rangers for a while because uh, he had criticized Putin in the past and there were threats made against him. The players are really in the crosshairs right now. There was talk at some point about uh, revoking visas of of Russian hockey players in the National Hockey League. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it's it's for the greater good of, of the league. But to be a Russian dissident is a very difficult position to be in. We've seen it over the years. And it's very, very hard for these hockey players, I think, to take a political stance. Uh, There is another story. Tiger Woods. Mm -hmm. He uh, didn't play a single official PGA Tour event last year, but the golf organization still designated him as the face of the sport. Tiger Woods, he won an $8 million PGA prize. (laughs) Just for being Tiger. (laughs) Phil Mickelson came in second, $6 million. (laughs) And then Phil Mickelson, he tweeted out, "Uh, hey, thank you all for giving me the top prize. And then Tiger responded back, whoops. (laughs) You know, it says something that Tiger Woods is still the face of golf. It's called the Player Impact Program, and they measured a bunch of different things, none of which involved, like you said, actually what happened on the green. Um, The metrics that were used to determine that Tiger won, five criteria, Nielsen ratings, Google searches, MVP index, Meltwater mentions, I don't know what that is, and Q rating, which is based on a player's appeal and popularity on social media. By the way, to wrap it up, (laughs) Tiger Woods, number one, Phil Mickelson, two, Rory McIlroy, third, Jordan Spieth, fourth, Bryson DeChambeau, fifth, Justin Thomas, sixth, 
Justin, uh, Dustin Johnson, 7th, Brooks Kepka, 8th, John Rahm, 9th, and Bubba Watson finished 10th. Coming up next on the show, we speak with Noel LaMontagne, former NFL offensive lineman and director of the pro team at Redentz Capital Advisors. Straight ahead on Bloomberg Business of Sports, I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Scarlett Foo. I'm on Twitter at Scarlett Foo, one T. And I'm Mike Lynch on Twitter at LynchyWCBB. And don't forget to catch our podcast. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays on all your podcast platforms and right here on Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports with Michael Barr, Scarlett Fu, and Mike Lynch from Bloomberg Radio. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Mike Lynch. Coming up on the show, opening day delay on now. We'll get the latest on CBA negotiations with MLB Network's John Morosi. But first, let's talk wealth management for professional athletes. I need to call this guy, too. Uh, according to a report from the New York Times, Milwaukee Bucks point guard Drew Holiday and his wife, former pro soccer player and Olympic gold medalist Lauren Holiday, they have joined two NBA players in a lawsuit against Morgan Stanley and a former broker alleging inappropriate distribution of money. The Holidays alleged that the ex-Morgan Stanley broker was entrusted to make basic long-term investments but steered millions of dollars to dubious individuals losing most of it in the process. So let's talk more about all of this with Noel LaMontagne. He is the director of the pro team at Verdant Capital Advisors and a former offensive lineman for the Cleveland Browns. See, that's where I know that name. <laughs> Noel, welcome to the show, sir. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I really uh, I really appreciate you all having me on. Well, let's let's start with that because we, we did the setup there about uh, some of the players that are saying, hey, we were scammed. Uh, my question to you is, if this is true, is this something that's normal that happens in the business? Unfortunately, the more that we have helped provide the types of services that we do for ultra high net worth individuals into the athlete entertainer space, the more we're seeing a lot of questionable things being done with the assets of these types of individuals. And I think it boils down to there's a lot of athletes and entertainers who have so many other things going on in their lives that they're asleep at the wheel when it comes to their finances. And whether something nefarious or just something maybe unknown, agreed upon, but not 100% aware of what was actually happening here, I can tell you that we're just seeing too much of this. There's too much of a lack of awareness in this space with these types of clients. They're not paying enough attention to what their advisors are doing with their money, why they're doing it how the mechanisms actually work. Mm -hmm. um, they're giving up control in ways that they shouldn't be giving up control. And, you know, in the good old days, people just wanted to stuff all their cash into mattresses. Unfortunately, that would actually be a better outcome than what a lot of these people are doing, trying to get in with these fancy boutique groups and individuals who really just aren't looking out for their best interest. Well, professional athletes are definitely more vulnerable than a lot of ordinary investors. There was an Ernst & Young report last year quoted in the Times that said uh, professional athletes reported almost $600 million in fraud-related losses from 2004 to 2019. So certainly there's a trend there, and it's, it's troubling. But the folks who say they got scammed here, they did what a lot of ordinary investors do and what they should do, right? They relied on a big-name brokerage, Morgan Stanley, and 
it's not like they went and found someone dodgy. They found someone that is attached to a firm that has a reputation for doing things properly. I mean, how could they have gotten around this? You actually just hit a really key point in my mind is, is that that study that reveals those statistics that, you know, individuals like athletes or entertainers are more susceptible. Everybody is exactly equally susceptible. There's nobody that's any less susceptible than anybody else. What it boils down to, and it's something that we preach, we're extremely proactive when it comes to the transparency side of things. And I think in the athlete entertainer space, you really have to be proactively transparent. You have to sit some of these individuals down, you have to show them exactly what you're doing. You have to show them why you're doing it. You have to meet with them more often. You have to educate them because if you don't, the psychology, I think, of a lot of these alpha individuals is to just not want to be perceived in any way, shape or form as weak or not intellectually on par or not understanding something. They don't want to ask the question. So you have to force them to see the answer to the question that they're not asking. And that's something that we've really focused on. And I don't necessarily think that's unique to athletes and entertainers. And and it is scary that this was a big box firm and this was somebody who, well, you know, you should be able to walk into this group and know that this advisor is held to a standard and they're not going to do anything that would be in any way, shape or form perceived as cross the line. Unfortunately, if you're not paying attention to exactly what's going on with your assets, anybody can do that to anybody. Hey, Noel, it's Mike Lynch up in Boston. I know we spoke about this a couple of years ago. I'm involved in this financial literacy program up in Boston called Credit for Life, where we have, oh, about 1,200 high school kids come in and they pick a profession and they go around to every booth and they have, uh, you know, electricity, utilities, they have uh, automotive, they have housing, they have education, they have a vacation, and they try to fit it in their budget. And it's stunning how eye-opening it is that most of these kids don't even know how to balance a checkbook. I can only imagine the lack of empowerment that some of these athletes have financially when they come to you. Do you feel like you almost have to be a mentor or a tutor at first before you become a financial advisor? And this goes across the spectrum of whether it's a young athlete or even a veteran, because what what we've seen is just over the course of time, there really is a lack of literacy in this space. And the problem is, is that they don't even want to recognize it. They don't want to acknowledge it. They don't want to pursue it because, listen, finance and and the handling of assets and all the different things that go on, especially when you start getting into really complex situations with individuals with a lot of with a lot of assets who are building a lot of wealth. It, it's very, very daunting. So when you do educate them, when you do help them become literate in this space, it's extremely empowering to them. And if you start with them at the beginning of their careers or when they're younger, you can see it build over time. And it's really impressive when, when an older athlete who you've worked with and mentored and helped educate over, say, five years, 10 years, 15 years, when they come to you and somebody in the locker room or somebody walks up to them after a game and presents them with the, with the, next, the next Bitcoin, they've already asked for the right documentation. They've already asked the right questions. They've already, in a way, done some of the preliminary due diligence. And, and you can have these conversations and just say, okay, you know what? I've actually given this individual the skill set to defend themselves, to protect themselves, to protect their wealth. Noel, you are the man. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and you give great advice uh, about money. I mean, it's right in the name, Burden's Capital Advisors. I mean, you're right there. So it's built right in the name. So that's why you're very good at this. Thank you so much, sir. 
You're welcome. You all are very kind. <laughs> well, you, you should see Lynchy on a Saturday morning when he's up too early. <laughs> up next, I don't, on, I don't know if I, I don't know if I would signed up for that. <laughs> <laughs> up next on the show, we speak with MLB Network's John Morosi, and we'll get the latest on the lockout. That's straight ahead on Bloomberg Business of Sports. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Scarlett Foo. I'm on Twitter at Scarlett Foo. And I'm Mike Lynch on Twitter at LynchyWCVB. And don't forget to catch our podcast. That's Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays on all your podcast platforms and right here on Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports with Michael Barr, Scarlett Fu, and Mike Lynch from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us on the Bloomberg Business of Sports show. We explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barr. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Mike Lynch. And let's turn to Major League Baseball now, where the lockout continues. The league announced the delay of the 2022 regular season after failing to come to an agreement on a new collective bargaining agreement with the Players Association. Commissioner Rob Manfred addressed the media this past week. So far, the parties have failed to achieve their mutual goal of reaching an agreement. The calendar dictates that we're not going to be able to play the first two series of the regular season, and those games are officially canceled. MLB Commissioner Rob Manfred. Let's break this all down with MLB Network's John Morosi. John, welcome to the show. What happened? Why do we have this at this moment right now in for sports fans, a lockout in MLB? I think both an issue of the short term and the long term. For a number of years now, uh, the, the players have had a number of concerns about how younger players in particular are being paid and also how the free agent market is functioning, where in years gone by, when players had a very strong six years to begin their careers, they were rewarded with lucrative multi-year contracts. But now with the current generation of, uh, of leadership at the club level, uh, very statistically driven, there's been a lot of research done to say, wait a minute, uh, players that are in their 30s are not as productive as they are in their 20s. So when these players hit free agency, I'm going to just decide to invest in my younger players and, and let them be promoted from within because that is cheaper and more efficient. And so when that decision process is replicated, there's a lot of hard feelings on the part of the union. So against that backdrop of years of, I think, a reduction in the, the collaboration between the sides, you have now this CBA negotiation becoming very pitched from a standpoint of the, the feelings on both sides and what each side is trying to achieve here, where the, the union believes the status quo is simply not tenable any longer. And, and MLB, I think on their behalf, they've proposed a number of wins for the players, increasing the minimum salary to $700,000, uh, increasing this new bonus pool for younger players to be paid when they have uh, historic types of achievements. So there have been wins put in this agreement, Michael, but just not enough to where the union is satisfied. I think ultimately we're going to have to see that competitive balance tax threshold that we talk so much about, which is uh, that the union calls it 
the soft cap. It, it is effectively the upper bound that teams can spend to before they're penalized with a luxury tax uh, back in the central baseball and revenue sharing. That is now, uh, I think, that the key question is of how high that number can go. Mm-hmm. And until that number gets higher than where it is right now, which is $220 million per team per year, I think this lockout is going to continue. So we were talking with Noel LaMontagne a little bit earlier. Uh, he's a former collegiate and NFL player, and he now runs Verdon's Capital Advisors. And he was just remarking how the MLB Players Union is strong. It's it's stronger than, say, the NFL Players Union. The players are united. They're, they're educated on this. Um, they have a longer career in the sport than, say, football players do. They've got the experience. They've gone through a lot together. I'm just curious from where you stand, how formidable is this union versus, say, other players' unions in other sports? Because they're up against Rob Manfred, who will represent the owner's side. Right, Scarlett. It's a great question. I, I think anecdotally, this is as strong as we have seen the union in a, a long time, maybe in decades, in terms of the unification of, of that group. And uh, they've been preparing for this for a while. They have seen these storm clouds coming. And I would say this, that both sides in, in, in this negotiation it's important, I think, for us to all remember that they're not monolithic in any way. On the player's side, there are fundamental differences in terms of the backgrounds of the players. Obviously, a college player, a high school player, an international player, they all arrive to this point with different life experiences. And in some ways, it's difficult to stitch together a unified front when you're talking about a player who perhaps has a high school education, signs at 18, and and this is now their chance to make it big. Uh, Professionally, uh, that person who has not yet really earned a big fortune is in a fundamentally different place than, for example, a Max Scherzer who just signed another lucrative free agent deal with the New York Mets. The New York Yankees, the Los Angeles Dodgers, has a different set of economic and financial parameters and expectations than the owner of the Pittsburgh Pirates or the Miami Marlins or the Tampa Bay Rays. I think if, uh, what we'll never really know, Scarlett, but I think it's a very interesting question that you're raising here, would we already have a deal if you were to put in a vacuum Rob Manford and his negotiating team to say, what do you think is a fair deal? And if they were to then strike that deal, we might already have a deal, so to speak, but for the fact that two-thirds of the owners must ratify it. So this is not necessarily just what is a fair deal according to Rob Manfred. It's what is a fair deal in the mind of, to use the political term, his caucus. Up next on the show, stay tuned for more of our conversation with MLB Network's John Morosi. And we'll also talk about trying to get the pay for the young players in baseball. That's straight ahead on Bloomberg Business for Sports. I'm Michael Barr. You can follow me on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm on Twitter at Scarlett Foo. And I'm on Twitter at Lynchy WCBB. And don't forget to catch our podcast. That is Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays on all your podcast platforms and right here on Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. Let's talk about some of the more interesting aspects of business of sports. There's all kinds of cool questions, so this is a fun topic to make. The country is finally getting the memo about how amazing this sport is. I think the sky's the limit for MLS. We're spending more and more of our time in a digital world, and it's also becoming a really powerful place for commerce. It is so nice to be back and to be able to have fans back in the building. So despite the chaotic schedule, this is why we do what we do. When you get into the playoffs, there's nothing 
better as a player. It's an excitement, and it's also for the organization and sponsors involved. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. This is the Bloomberg Business of Sports show where we explore the big money issues in the world of sports. I'm Michael Barnes. I'm Scarlett Fu. And I'm Mike Lynch. Well, it's nearly three months since the MLB lockout began. Now the first two series of the 2022 regular season canceled. Let's continue our conversation with MLB Network's John Morosi. And John, one of the, the topics that is on the table, it's about trying to get money for the young baseball players. The minimum salary in MLB, I believe, is $675,000. The owners have offered $700,000. The players union wants $725,000 and the option to raise that even more. And if younger players perform exceptionally well on the field, the option to renegotiate their contract. Can we get past this sticking point? I hope that we can. Uh, it is a very important part of, of the conversation now, Michael. I, I do think that the last proposal from MLB included the increase in a minimum salary to $700,000, as you mentioned. And previous to that, MLB had been at 675 and the union had been at 725 So that was an exact midpoint settlement. I don't believe that the minimum salary discussion needs to move much more, if at all, for there to be a deal. I think that the huge issue now, now that number has moved up, uh, more than $100,000 from the end of the last agreement, I believe that they are close to agreeing on what that number is, and the larger conversation is now going to be to that per-team competitive balance tax threshold, which uh, right now MLB is offered at $220 million, and the union wants to be $238 million. I think that is probably where the large conversation is. And, and honestly, Michael, I applaud MLB for the moves they've made to both increase the minimum salary and create for the first time what has been called the pre-arbitration bonus pool and is a, a mechanism for players who achieve at extraordinary levels. John, uh, when this thing is finally settled, there's three questions I want you to answer. Chances of making up the games that have been canceled, retro pay for the players, and retro service time, most importantly, for oh, the young players. Oh, good point. Right, yeah, great questions, Mike. I, I, I do think that MLB has been pretty clear on this, that they, they are not going to pay the players uh, for games that were canceled. Uh, and I believe that that will be the case, that, that they will not be paid here, uh, and the games will not be made up. This is now a part of the, 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 both the negotiating posture of MLB and also the reality of the calendar in terms of when those games have to get done. They're trying to expand the playoffs as well. Uh, of course, the players have indicated their support for expanded playoffs was contingent on the, the full season, certainly. So that, there's that other element to be dealt with going forward. I, I think that the service time question is easier to parse than the financial one. Uh, it's, you can at least credit, especially because a full year of service is, is actually a fewer number of days than are in the major league season. There's a little bit of a wiggle room there of about, about a couple weeks, effectively, which, again, speaks to why it is crucial from a standpoint of the accounting in that respect to get the game back on the field before the end of April, then the service time question is much easier to answer. You hope to be able to play games on Jackie Robinson Day. But in terms of paying players, if it's a 154-game season, just to use that round number, 156, 
I, I think they're going to be paid for 156. I, I don't think the retroactive pay is going to be restored at the full level, uh, nor will those gains be made up. And every every week now that we go without a deal, I believe Mike is going to be a week of regular season baseball games lost. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but I was just reading uh, Deadspin and Jesse Spector was talking about how when this lockout ends, because eventually it will, and we're not sure right. what what form or shape it'll take, but it will end. He says Rob Manfred has got to go. Um, as commissioner, he's become toxic because the workforce will never trust him. Um, the public is disappointed and the bosses um, will now look at the fact that there was no longer a period of labor peace. Uh, and there's a lot of questions about the growth of the sport, the appeal of the sport to a younger demographic. He's proposing that the MLB needs a new commissioner, someone like a Derek Jeter. So I wanted to get your take on on Derek Jeter because Derek Jeter doesn't have a job right now, right? He stepped down as the CEO of the Miami Marlins. First of all, what's your take on on why Jeter left that club, and and what do you think he's going to do next? Uh, it's a great question about Jeter's next move because certainly the game is better when Derek Jeter is part of it. Uh, a couple things there. Number one. When Derek joined the Marlins, he talked about wanting to to build a winning culture, and certainly they made a lot of steps along that process. They made the playoffs in 2020. They won a playoff round against the Cubs at Wrigley Field. They have one of the very best overall pitching uh, organizations in the sport right now when you consider how much pitching depth they've got. So they've had some success there. The issue, I think, is that Derek perhaps – looks around and sees that the the payroll numbers that he thought they were going to be able to go to uh, are are not, in fact, going to be delivered. And he makes his decision known while the MLB and MLBPA officials were negotiating at the spring training home of his organization. So clearly, the the timing of it all, uh, I don't think it was a coincidence. I think there was certainly a an understanding that, that Derek was dissatisfied with the way things were going with the Marlins, and perhaps that could be extrapolated over the industry itself to say, hey, as much as I love baseball, I need to leave right now and see what happens going forward. I, I, I do think there is a role um, for him in the game in the future. Whether it's commissioner or not certainly is not for me to say, but I, I do believe his leadership, his understanding of what it takes for a player to achieve at the highest levels and also now his management background make him a key leader going forward. It's a simple and blunt question with this work stoppage. How much has this damaged the game of baseball? Well, the commissioner said himself uh, a month or so ago that losing games would be disastrous, and I think that is correct. It is, it's a disaster on a lot of different levels. Uh, certainly emotionally, for those of us who love the game, my hope with, with all this, Michael, is that whenever this thing wraps up, that people shake hands in that room, walk out, and say, listen, we have to humbly put our differences aside and grow the game, because if we don't, we are, we are going to lose people year after year after year. John Morosi, you are the man. Thank you so much, sir. Two great guests, John Morosi yeah. and Noel. And I guess I, I want to talk about what John was saying and about baseball. I hope the game is not damaged because yeah. of this lockout. And I hope both sides get it together promptly, Scar. I think that's the hope, but I think baseball has already been kind of going downhill for the last couple of years. I mean, what we discussed with John about how long the games are. We've talked about this 
for a while. And this is mm. certainly not new. And yeah, the different ways that kids can keep themselves entertained has multiplied um, while baseball games have only gotten longer. And the price of tickets has gone through the roof with the fancy stadiums. It's going to be a long climb back for the sport to to make itself relevant to this younger demographic. And this is not something we talked about, John, because he works for MLB Networks, which is partly owned by MLB. But Rob Manfred is a commissioner. He works on behalf of the owners, right? I mean, he works, he serves at their pleasure. He's not a neutral, impartial person uh, overseeing everything. And I think that's something that maybe the public doesn't always understand or may not be fully aware of. You know, what struck me, and I, I didn't forget about this, but how fast it's coming down the track. April 15th, 2022, 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking in. That's two weeks and two days into the season, which mm. is scheduled to start March 31st. I just, and I agree with him a thousand percent. Been absolutely shame and a disgrace if baseball is not back on the field. Hopefully, that will be opening day for everybody. Jackie Robinson's 75th anniversary. I think it's something that both sides should shoot for. I think it would go miles towards a goodwill olive branch towards That's a good the fans. Point. Yeah. Towards the fans who really have been ostracized here. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. Now. <laughs> He's got the number. Guess what? I hear the paper. There it is. <laughs> I hear a piece of paper being sort of flexed in the. Time now for the number of the week. Our uh, number of the week comes from the Bloomberg Wire. Denise Coates, her paycheck, it's pretty doggone good. 54-year-old founder and co-chief executive officer of Bet365 Group uh, out of the UK, including pay and dividends in the year to March 2021, was her salary. In dollars. I don't want it in pounds. I want it in dollars. I'm going to say $200 million, but I, I'm just taking a wild stab there. If she was a man, I would say a lot more. I'm going to top that. I'm going to go $250 million. You know how much Denise Coates made? $400 million. No. Yes. In wow. pay and <laughs> dividends in the year to March 2021. <laughs> Lynn, she wins the game. Oh, Lynn. Thank you very much. You are thank great, you, thank you. Lynn. She, you just made his week. You're number one. <laughs> this is the Bloomberg yes. Business of Sports Show. And we're here each and every week at the same time to hear Lynchy win, plus <laughs> online, wherever you get your podcast. Now, you can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. I'm Scarlett Foo. I'm on Twitter at Scarlett Foo, one T. And I'm Mike Lynch on Twitter at LynchyWCVB. From Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Paul Nyka. And I'm Skip Bronson. And what happens when two old friends take their decades of experience in the business and entertainment worlds and sit down with our buddies? You get Our Way, a brand new show from My Heart Podcast, where we chop it up with our pals about everything under the sun. This is our podcast, and we're going to do it our way. Listen to Our Way on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.